<laughs> There's no need to say sadhu. I haven't given any teachings yet. It's a, it's a kind of a outpouring of enthusiasm. But uh, it's after the Dhamma talk has been given, then it's the time for the sadhu. sadhu. So this evening, uh, Joseph and I plan to divide things up 50-50 on the theme of numbers. <laughs> Since we've been um, taking, it, taking it in turns to offer teachings in the evenings, and then tomorrow we won't be having a Dhamma talk by the two of us, but by the opportunity for uh, uh, all of you to hear each other, to uh, share your reflections, observations, experiences. So if you are having performance, if you're one who's, prefer, who's prone to performance anxieties, you can start now. <laughs> or not, as you, try, as you choose. So uh, we'll um, offer a few reflections uh, this evening. Uh, usually around this time of the retreat, uh, people are, are very aware of the fact that there's only uh, a little while left to go, another couple of days, and it'll... Our little world will dissolve. Our revels will have ended. And, uh, uh, so it's useful to consider what will be uh, beneficial, or how can we take the, these teachings, these practices, and transfer them outside of the um, very protected, sheltered environment of, of Amravati, outside of a, a, t a time and a situation where all around us there are just benign beings smiling, making Anjali, not annoying you, <laughs> not having any opinions, not asking you to, to be anybody special. So that, that's, uh, there's, there's many different kind of um, tips or, or aspects of the teachings that we can take with us. Um, one of the, the things I like to... Uh, encourage, and those of you who've done retreats with me or heard me giving talks in the past will, will be familiar with this. Uh, we, when we think of having a period of meditation, we, we assume it's for 45 minutes or half an hour or an hour long. But uh, I like to promote the idea of the five-second meditation. Because uh, I don't think anybody is so busy, so consumed with activity that they can't find an extra five seconds in the day <coughs> a few times and if you can't find an extra five seconds in the day you're in deep trouble <laughs> you really are in trouble uh, and, and so uh, what I mean by this is as you as you'll probably have noticed uh, when you're going about your, your routine and we're having our, our life here and you find you're, you're getting caught up in the sort of busyness of doing your job, washing the, the pots or trimming the bushes or uh, you know, hoovering the carpet or cleaning the toilet or whatever it might be that you're doing, then and suddenly you realize, oh, I've been, I'm caught up in this activity and uh, I got distracted there. <coughs> you have a, a, a sort of a quiet, supportive environment to, to recollect, all right, I'm on a retreat with some uh, developing the meditation. And you can... Uh, Pause for a moment and, and uh, collect your your uh, <coughs> collect your mind and re reestablish the quality of, of attention. 
But we can still do that in the, the world uh, around uh, when we're out in the, um, the realm of activity, of the family, of our working life, uh, being out uh, contributing to the traffic on the M25 or your, your local favorite uh, road or, or, uh, or like the M25 is known as the world's greatest, uh, the world's largest car park sitting there occupying space on the road. You can uh, also find this uh, quality of, of composure and, and clarity. And it doesn't take long, uh, as you will, might have noticed, when you're, you're carrying out some sort of task, you think, oh, I'm getting really caught up. <sighs> okay. And you can just pause for a moment and then reestablish that quality of attention. So when we are, are in our own homes or in the workplace, uh, anywhere really we can we can take a few moments just to re-establish that quality of attention and it doesn't take a long time it's more like you you know the silence you know the inner peacefulness you know that already you just forgot it because you were busy cleaning the toilet or you know, uh, walking from A to B or you know, washing your pots or brushing your teeth or whatever yeah. <coughs> when you give yourself a moment something in the heart goes oh yes of course So that's available all the time and uh, during the course of a day. So I like to uh, encourage what I call these micro-meditations, just uh, five seconds long. And you can find time many times during the day for, for this kind of thing. When you get up in the morning and you, know, you, you realize that somehow the alarm clock didn't get, didn't get you up as soon as it was supposed to, <laughs> Um, and you think, oh, I've got so much to do, I've got to get to work. Uh, <coughs> to um, to not just get caught in that flow of activity, buzzing around and, and gathering your things, but uh, <coughs> you've, you've uh, uh, been to the bathroom, had your cup of tea, picked up your car keys, and then you can stop. Stand there with your car keys in your hand. One. Okay, <laughs> and in that flow of activity, and even the, the the need to walk briskly down to your your vehicle, there's that uh, the recollection. Oh, all of this is happening in the peace of the mind. There's nobody going anywhere. There are just conditions of mind that are changing. Right, <laughs> and uh, when you get in the or when you get in the car, just uh, assume presuming you have a car or. You don't, and you don't have to start the car as soon as you sit in the driving seat. You can just sit there. Your driving seat can be your meditation seat. So, uh, and also, you d you uh, you don't have to be ruled by what they think or what they might think. The mysterious they, who are members of your committee, who are judging your life and your activities. But <coughs> If you get into your car and you just sit there for five seconds before you turn the ignition or push the button or whatever you do, it's completely legal. <laughs> you will not be arrested or charged for any offense for sitting in your car for five seconds before you turn the key. You can you get in the car, close the door, sit down. One, two, three, four, five. Okay. 
and uh, you know, I don't have to go into to great detail about this, but you can choose your own times. Um, you know, we all need to go to the bathroom many times during the day. Yeah, you're there by yourself. You know, the world is not watching. You can go to the bathroom, and then you can, when you've finished your business, you can wait for five seconds before you leave the door. Again, no one is going to arrest you or think badly of you for taking an extra five seconds before you walk through the door and rejoin the, the rest of the world in your house, or your workplace, and uh, in the, um, the 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 rest of the uh, uh, the the world is is quite happy to let you have another five seconds. So there, during the course of a day, there's there's uh, countless opportunities for these little pauses, and so uh, you might think, well, that's really stupid. <laughs> well, but what will they think? Well, they assume I'm having a really bad senior moment, and I'm only forty-five. <laughs> well, that's okay. Let, let I feel it's important to do what you do and let the world make of it what it will. I'll say that again. <laughs> Just do what you do. And let the world make of it what it will. We don't have to build our life around what they think. The mysterious they whose sole purpose in life is to make judgments about us. And I'll, I'll reveal a secret as well. They don't really exist. <laughs> it's, a, it's just a, a projection. Anxiety our mind creates, you know, spun out of self-view. And it's uh, it's very relaxing. I, and, and this was, I, and I speak of someone who was who spent most of his life worrying about what they will think, <laughs> what they are thinking, and convinced that they were judging me all the time, and living in a state of of pretty much unremitting anxiety, trying to please them, the mysterious them, all the time. <laughs> and I, I told a few uh, told a few people during the the interview uh, the discussions that we that we had how. Uh, I, I'd already been a monk for about six or seven years before I, it dawned on me that I was anxious all the time. It was so pervasive, so continuous, that uh, I just didn't realize I was doing it. It's like the, like the force of gravity or like breathing. It's like, well, you don't sort of wake up in the morning and think, hmm, gravity. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not news. It's like you, you feel your weight all the time. It's nothing special. You know, everyone feels gravity in the same way. Unless you're up in the International Space Station, <laughs> you know we feel gravity all the time. So this is what it was like. I just was in a state of anxiety, and as I would often characterize it, my my approach to life was: if it exists, worry about it. It's a <laughs> default option in relationship to to the universe. You know, even like exploding supernovae in galaxies that were like. Uh, 20 light years away. You know, it happened 20 years ago, and you can still be worried, oh, beer, that's a big explosion. <laughs> yeah, the light took 20 years to reach us, or, or a, a thousand years to reach us, and you can still be worried about, oh dear, I hope everything's all right over there. Or, um, so uh, it took me a long time to, to realize that I was in this anxious state all the time, so I was very grateful for Lumpur Sonado's really good advice about working with emotion and developing uh, body awareness, which uh, I'll talk about in a minute. But um, during that time, as I was really focusing directly 
uh, as a sort of daily practice is my main kind of practice on, on uh, anxiety and learning to, to let go of it uh, I, I developed this as a daily reflection at first I couldn't even think the thought to think the thought just do what you do and let the world make of it what it will I could barely get to the end of the sentence no 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 you can't you can't think that oh no 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 whoa that's completely verboten you can't you can't you can't do that I mean that's that's wrong I mean I mean you've invested so much in what they think you can't just ignore it now but uh, as they say no matter how far you've gone down the wrong path when you find out turn back so uh, I, I realized, well, maybe I can. I can just operate that way. And so at first there was this sort of this kind of reaction that, that it was impossible to think that way. And then when I, I started to, to really apply that, there was this enormous relaxation. <sighs> like I didn't realize I was carrying around three extra suitcases filled with rocks. <laughs> and then you put them down and you realize... Why was I doing that? <laughs> that was a real, that was a real chore. And uh, and you know, part of my the my sort of anxious uh, habit was trying to please everyone all the time. So I'm a kind of compulsive pleaser, always trying to be helpful and doing every, you know, pleasing everyone and doing the right thing all the time, trying to be super monk. And uh, and it was one of the uh, again I, I shared this with one of the one of the groups uh, a few days ago. It was, it was a kind of a, a sweet thing to, to hear, but also kind of uh, slightly unsettling, where um, during this time, as I was developing this, this sort of um, not caring what the world thinks, uh, one of the, the this, was in Amravati, this was here in Amravati back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, then it's quite a casual remark in a very friendly way. One of the monks said, you know, you're much easier to live with since you stop trying to be perfect all the time. <gasps> oh. <laughs> so I was kind of pleased that he sort of noticed that I wasn't so uh, compulsive. But uh, I didn't realize that trying to be perfect and helpful was actually really irritating or made me difficult to live with. And so I thought, well, that's an interesting teaching. When you stop trying to be perfect and stop trying to do the right thing all the time, that you make yourself... Uh, you can make yourself much easier to, to be with. So in this um, kind of uh, <coughs> readiness to um, let the world think of it, what uh, think of you, what it will, there's a, a letting go of self-view and a letting go of other. So um, in in a retreat situation, I often point out it's it's uh, about as plain and simple, benign as we can get as a human being. And many of you know each other, many of you don't yet know each other. You know, as far as you know, or that you just think, or that's the the woman with the maroon cardigan in the front row. You don't know her story, or you know, that's the bloke with the <coughs> with the you know the red jacket. No story, no name. It's just you know, or that woman with the purple shawl, or or. The woman with the with the shaved head, who I think lives at Amravati, but I'm not sure what her name is. <laughs> Marvelous! You're just blob number five, row three. You know, blob number eight, row uh, row two. <sighs> How peaceful! You know, we don't have each other's stories. We don't have 
We don't sort of carry around our histories and our opinions and such like. Uh, so part of the peacefulness of that is that uh, you know, it comes from not, not knowing each other, not knowing the names and stories. You know? And so some of that can be, uh, say, maintained even outside a retreat situation by not dwelling upon the stories or the judgments or the, or the uh, impressions or opinions. And so uh, you can think of this as, as not creating each other. So, you know, you might have all kinds of stories and impressions about the people that you work with in the, in the office or the school or the, you know, the, the business or the, the shop or wherever, wherever you work. And you know, you're carrying all these people around. And that's, a, that's, a, that's work. <laughs> that's hard work. And, uh, but we don't have to carry them around. You don't have to create people and you don't have to create yourself and when we uh, we sort of watch the mind and we see how in a retreat situation that we uh, we don't have to create each other we don't uh, sort of dwell upon the stories or impressions or, or um, approval or disapproval of what someone looks like or their age or their gender or their, their kind of nationality it doesn't matter it's insignificant so we can adopt the same kind of attitude in relationship to the people that we, we work with. We don't have to carry them around. We don't have to dwell on the, our judgments about them or the past history. We can uh, meet them without having a, a set of pre, uh, uh, preconceived ideas and opinions. Uh, so this when I, I use an expression like not creating each other. Uh, it's uh, Say you, you, you've got to go to a meeting and the, the, some people in the meeting are... Uh, uh, people that uh, maybe you had some kind of disagreement with before. So before the meeting, you think, oh, I'm going to say this, and then you know, she's going to say that, and then she says this, and then and, and he always chimes in and says that. And, and, then, and then, well, when he says that, then I'm going to say, and just to hear your mind doing that and say, leave it. <laughs> you don't know. It's uncertain. It's anichan. You don't know. Just open the door and see what happens. <sighs> And then you're actually much more fresh to the moment, <laughs> and you can really meet people. Uh, this is what I find. Uh, otherwise, if you're carrying around your your presumptions, your judgments, your preconceptions, your fears, your projections, what you meet is your projections. You don't meet the person. <laughs> you meet your script. You know the your projections as written in the script. And uh, so it's much more peaceful and spacious to to not create each other. So another of the useful um, things that we develop in the retreat that we can carry on is uh, you know, mindfulness of the body. So some aspects of the body are very obvious, like when you've got a runny nose, <laughs> then your mindfulness of the nose, water element inside, water element outside. There you go. What is now, What was amaro is now snotty tissue. So you can reflect on the body in that way. When it kind of grabs your attention, but also, but it's not grabbing your attention, just to, because uh, uh, we often live in our thoughts and our memories, our, our anticipations, and we get wrapped up in the uh, ideas of the past and future, and 
the more that we can bring our attention to the present, then the more we're able to attune to the, the people that we're with, the things that we're doing, the, the mood that is there, and uh, we can uh, harmonize our, our lives much more effectively with what's happening and who we're with if the attention is in the present. So it's a kind of an obvious thing, but your body is always in the present moment. Right? <laughs> I mean, again, I, I say this pretty much every retreat, and, and you can tell there's a certain amount of what <laughs> in the room, but your body is always in the present. It never wanders off. So no matter how distracted, you may be in the, in your, in the meditation, you know, you've gone off to Thailand or China or Sri Lanka or Canada or you know, Brazil, and <clears throat> your body is always there to come back to. Have any of you ever had any distracted thought that was so extreme that when you came back to your cushion, your body was gone? <laughs> like, it gave up on you. said, oh, jeez, where's he gone now? He's off the other side of Alpha Centauri. Okay, I've had it. I'm, I'm fed up with this. You know. He's a lost cause. I'm, I'm going. And so you come back to your cushion. And, where's my body? Yeah. Doesn't happen. At least I've never heard it happening ever before. So... It's the, your body is like your most reliable, faithful friend. It's always here to come back to. It's like the most reliable companion, the most, uh, the, the one who will never unfriend you. <laughs> it's always there to go back to. So your body is your guaranteed link to the present reality. Absolutely fail-safe, uh, reliable. It's always here. So the best way of attuning the, the mind to the reality of the present is, is through the body. And also the body is a very good uh, representative of your emotional state. So that if you're, if you're uh, anxious or you're angry or you're, uh, uh, you're feeling you know, greedy or jealous, uh, different emotional states, they, they are played out in the body. And so whereas if you're jealous of some person because of something that they have they have they have got and you haven't got it then or if you're uh, if you're worried you're anxious you're afraid of a particular thing i was stuck on the m25 and the plane's gonna go and how am i gonna get there in time and i haven't you know i've only got so, so much time to check in and so that the attention goes to the object of worry or the object of anger or jealousy uh, desire and the and the the storying around the object uh, is compelling. You know, that's what our minds do. We get we get drawn into. Well, you know, he said this and, and she said that. And, uh, that storying is compelling, and so the and uh, the attention gets gets lost in it very easily. So we miss the fact. Oh, this is a an anger state. Or this is a jealousy state. Or this is a fear state. Or this is a, a greed state. A desire state. Because of of entrapment, you know, entanglement, entrapment in the story. So when we bring attention to the body, it's much simpler. It's a it's a very direct and simple language. It uses like sort of Ernest Hemingway kind of sentences. You know, three three or four words, and that's it. It's like this is what fear is like. <laughs> this is anger. You know. uh, I want that. Simple, clear, and that uh, that representation in the body. Oh, this is what wanting feels like. 
This is what jealousy feels like. This is what fear feels like. It's like this. And that uh, bringing attention to the, the body and note, knowing what that, that uh, experience is like, knowing its texture, helps to give a, a perspective on it. And then along with that, uh, just, just as, I, as I've been describing, just using simple phrases to describe the feeling, to, to just name what the present feeling is, then <coughs> that, that can be uh, extremely helpful. Because again, the, the attention gets caught by the content of what you're afraid of, or what you're irritated by, or what you're wanting, or what you're sad about. You know, that, uh, and just to be able to recognize, well, this is the feeling of grief. Grief feels like this. This is the feeling of wanting. This is the I gotta have feeling. That's what this is. And in that moment of, oh, it's, this is the I gotta have feeling, there's a little bit of space around it. There's a bit more uh, room to maneuver. And rather than being drawn into the content of that emotion, or, or that, that's a dangerous thing, or it's a desirable thing, or it's a sad thing, <coughs> the, the, the felt experience, uh, the texture of that, that experience in the moment is recognized as a whole event in itself. This is the grief feeling. This is the, the I, I, wish it was, uh, I wish it was different, but I'm stuck with it being this way feeling. <laughs> And I, I do this kind of practice a lot, and uh, I find it extremely helpful, even uh, uh, when the, it it might be very challenging or compelling or exciting, just to say, this is the, I got exactly what I wanted, and, and isn't that great feeling? <laughs> and this is the, oh no, this is exactly what I didn't want to happen, what the hell am I going to do now? Feeling. <laughs> and uh, in that in that uh, recoll uh, recollection, that recognition, we we're able to open the mind. Oh, this is just the, the quality of this moment. It's like this. So even though there might still be something to do or some way of responding or some uh, useful uh, uh, words to say or action to take, that action comes from an attunement to the present rather than a, a compulsion to get this or get rid of that or to... To say, come from the, a, a, a place of reactivity, and instead we come from a, an attunement. And <coughs> so, during the course of the day, whether you're in your home or with your other with other people, you're in your work situation, or you're on holiday, or you're sort of between worlds, or wherever, and the body is always here. And so, just developing that as a reference point, and. Uh, one of the, the things that I, when I was spending a lot of time looking at anxiety, what I would do, I'd set an intention first thing in the morning. This is the kind of late 80s, early 90s here at Amravati. And yeah, every, so every day in the morning meditation, I'd set this a clear conscious intention. Okay, Because I particularly wanted to work on anxiety, fear, because it was such a strong habit. I made it a project. So that... Uh, uh, I would set the intention at the beginning of the day. Okay, whenever a feeling of anxiety or fear arises, whether it's something internal, like worried about something I remember, or something external, worried about uh, what somebody thinks of me, or worried about whether some work project is going to succeed or not, whatever the object is, 
I set the intention to take the to notice that feeling of worry, fear, to then turn the attention back onto the body, and to to feel in the body where that uh, that fear is is located. What's the what's the physical sensation that, that goes with that fearing, that worrying? Usually, it would be a tightness in the gut. I would find. So then, uh, to re- to to set that intention. Okay, whenever I feel fear, anxiety, to notice it to bring attention into the body, to then relax the body, and then to ask myself after the body is relaxed, so, what was it that you were worried about? So I would set that as an intention. Uh, okay, whenever uh, uh, I feel fear or worry during the day, this is what I'm going to do. And of course, you know, you, you get distracted and get lost, uh, but after a time, doing that every day, every day, every day, then you get uh, sort of schooled to it, and I found that uh, making a, a project of that uh, you know, and developing that body awareness, it was uh, amazing how useful that was. Uh, I found it extraordinarily transformative. I mean, and it doesn't just work with worry. I mean, any particular um, emotional habit that you have that you want to understand a bit better and dealing with uh, irritation, if you're always complaining, finding fault with people, or you're always kind of acquisitive, you want to get stuff, you know, you're a shopaholic type. I'm not reading anybody's mind, by the way. If you had a suddenly, how did he know moment? <laughs> I didn't. But whatever it might be, you can flag that particular area and then use this as a, a kind of systematic practice. And, and, and I found particularly revealing that when you ask yourself the question, what was it that I was afraid of? Because it takes a couple of minutes to reassemble the, the 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 threat. <laughs> it, it was, oh yes, right, and then <laughs> then you remember and you can okay, I can I can worry again now. <laughs> Similarly with desire, what was it I want? What was it that I wanted? I had to get, I had to have, oh yes, right. <laughs> Suddenly you rec- you re- you realize that lack had to be constructed. If you didn't construct it, nothing was missing. And then when you did construct it, then oh, now I've not got that thing. Uh-huh. So these are a few um, tips uh, from um, my own particular collection that I found uh, helpful. And I'll now hand things over to Joseph to add his uh, own uh, offerings and his his collection, his lexicon, of uh, handy hints. <clears throat> I'm very grateful, Ajahn. I don't know if you're going to leave me any time or not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have four four hours left. <laughs> and a go go. So every evening I've been <clears throat> using the uh, hours scale as a point of reference. <laughs> so Ajahn um, Amaro has offered uh, a lot of good tips for uh, our transition back into uh, the world, but 
the transition is actually right now, isn't it? That we're here still in this moment. Our bodies are still in this moment, like Kazan was pointing out. The breath is still in this moment. And perhaps what might be helpful is uh, to see how as we approach this kind of countdown, if you will, how things begin to change from uh, the beginning uh, part of the retreat and, oh my God, 10 days, am I going to be able to make it? And, you know, what's it going to be like? And I know Ajahn Amaro, but I don't know about this Joseph guy. And, you know, whatever might have been going through your mind to perhaps settling and feeling comfortable and, and actually enjoying this uh, to, oh my God, I have to leave. And whatever it is, the realization that it is self-created, that I am responsible for this proliferation, for these thoughts, for this worry, for this anxiety, whatever it might be. I've mentioned a few times in talks uh, to the group and then also in some uh, time or two in the uh, interviews uh, the term self-talk. I think it's a good kind of point of reference uh, and another way of just talking about what's going on in our own minds, in our, our heads. And there's a very, very deep habit that we all hold in what we say to ourselves, that inner dialogue. And some of us may talk to ourselves out loud and, uh, and uh, may feel totally unselfconscious or very self-conscious about it. But whether it's verbalized uh, or not, uh, I heard a joke that what would, you, what would life be like if you knew that your thoughts were amplified for everyone to hear? So you kind of went around and not only could people pick up your vibes from your body language and stuff, but what if the thoughts were actually broadcast? And how much more mindful we would probably, you know, be if that was happening. So walking down the street, single male, single female, seeing another single male, single female, and all of a sudden those thoughts that might possibly come up, I don't know. You know, it was broadcast. And how much more uh, present we would be and, and guarded in what we think. Oh my God, they're, they're hearing me. And just, just entertain it for a moment, how much different a life would be. And uh, there would either be a lot of crazy people or a lot of very enlightened or awake people. Probably nothing in between. <clears throat> so I find particularly helpful the, uh, the idea of when we, w w what we've gained from the retreat. And I think it's perfectly fine to think that. And one suggestion is maybe as soon as uh, you can, and maybe you've already been doing that, maybe keeping a diary or just a simple notebook. But if there are important things to you, maybe one of the first things you want to do when you have that extra five minutes, ten minutes, or when you get home, whatever it is, and why it's still fresh in your memory to kind of write down some key points. So I really liked, you know, what Ajahn Amaro said about the second precept, or Joseph about the third, or that overall kind of uh, theme of seamless well-being, uh, protecting the world through sila. Uh, 
and how that was meaningful for me. Because it's very easy to say, and I, I might have mentioned it earlier, we come off of retreat and we see our friends that know us or close to and said, oh, how was your retreat? Oh, it was wonderful. Yeah, it was a really great retreat. Well, you know, what happened? Well, it was just, it was wonderful. It was really a good retreat. And as many times as you as they ask, you keep saying how good it was, but actually you find yourself, well, why was it good? Or what happened that made it good? And you can't actually, actually answer that. Because it is easy to flow out into, back into life and be somewhat forgetful about the benefits that you may feel. So it's not like we're trying to cast them in, in, uh, in some kind of fixed place that we never ever forget. But if in fact it is beneficial, then there's something that each of us is taking away. I'm certainly taking away an tremendous amount from uh, this retreat. And I can't speak for anybody else, especially Venerable Amro, but I'm sure he has a tremendous amount. And we've shared a few things that are, have come up. And to me, that's really the discovery of this practice, isn't of this, of what this actually is. Because if it becomes stagnant, if it becomes uh, just a habit, then how different is it than the ha our everyday habits? You know, another day. You know, they have an expression, uh, you know, what, what, how does it go? It says, same old S, you know what, but just a different day. <laughs> and how many of your attitudes is like that? Okay, just back to the humdrum of, of, of life, of work, of the job. And I would really strongly encourage you to see that if that's ever, 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 ever going to change, it has to be a change in here. There has to be an adjustment in here. And I'm amazed at the adjustments, the gradual but steadfast adjustment, adjustments that I make, how that adjusts how I view the world and perhaps how the world maybe views me. Because I can't control that, can I? I can't control what you're thinking. I can't control how good your retreat was. I can only step up to this place of, of honor and distinguished uh, uh, um, uh, walking, uh, talking stick, and and give forth the best that I can. And I know I I don't I don't even doubt that everyone here has that, and that you've used it, and so the trust that it's so important to have that trust. I mentioned a a, a friend who had been a monk for a short time, and when I first uh, uh, left the monastery, I think it was in the first um, three years. So I was in Washington, D.C. for a pretty horrendous two years, and I went to Massachusetts, and kind of where a lot of things started to change for me. And he said to me, he says, well, trust in your journey. Trust in your journey. So what is your journey? What is What is my journey? And your journey has brought you here in this moment, in this time, to share this incredible space and the, uh, the what we have created together. Yes, we've helped. We've been a significant part because we've been given and invited to play that that uh, that role. But I've said repeatedly that this wouldn't be if if Ajahn Amaro and I did a ten day offered a ten day retreat, and he, he and I were the only ones, and we sat here for ten days. This has been a very different retreat. 
I'm sure we would have had fun and you know made something of it. But it'd been totally different, yes. wouldn't it? <laughs> and we held each other responsible for showing up and you know doing the walking and everything. It would be a totally different retreat. And then maybe we never would do another one. I don't know. <laughs> So that that self-talk, as I become more aware of how I influence continuously the world that I, as I relate to here and outside of here in every aspect of life, that this is the, the, the cutting edge of where practice is. It can't be anywhere else, can it? Think about that. Yes, it, it, formal practice is absolutely critical. And that's taken me a while to learn. And I also shared the other night about that my practice was the precepts, that that was so important to me. But as time has gone on, then that kind of bit comes back and starts to feed. Now when I sit, I sit much more quietly. I sit much more centered, much more uh, at ease with how things are. So was it the precepts? Absolutely, they were a part of it. How much? I don't really know. I don't have a, a, uh, you know, a bank account that I can look back on and kind of see the checks and balances and how much interest I've gained and all of that. But we can do that in the, in the moment, can't we? When we check in with ourselves, when we reflect on uh, how I am in this moment, and there is such incredible, rich opportunity, but it absolutely is hard. Don't even think that it's easy. But because it's hard, it becomes easier when we bring forth that effort. And this, the, 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 one of the last, I think, uh, groups today is talking about just the, the steadfast presence of just being with things as they are in this moment. So I was just talking about the five-second meditation. Uh, these days they have uh, they have uh, these things called Fitbits. If they have them in this country, they have different, you know, the Apple Watch, all sorts of gadget, uh, technology. But a Fitbit, you can set it for how many steps you take in a day. And so you look at it. So you'd be amazed, like you go upstairs instead of take the elevator. You um, you know, walk to the toilet instead of, you know, the escalator, or you go out, you go to the loo across the street or something. I don't know, whatever you want to be creative to get your steps in, and you're kind of keeping a, an eye on that. Well, they also have an app for a meditation app. Now, I've put it on my phone, but I haven't really used it much. But I think you can actually kind of keep monitor how much mindfulness you develop or how you're sitting practice. Now, this might seem a little silly, but I mean, why not use the resources that we have if you find that helpful? Because it's the resources are there, so it's no different than if we're going to have a meal, then we're not just going to eat the watermelon or just, the, I mean, our habit might be, I just want the sweets because I like sweets, I want that. But we're better when we have a balance, isn't it? When we have a little bit of this and some veg and some fruit and a little carb and a little protein. And so these things are all helpful keeping our bodies healthy then exploring and discovering 
what helps you and I keep our, our minds healthy, the mental fitness. Uh, we have physical fitness, uh, and the emphasis is always on physical fitness, isn't it? We don't think about mental fitness, and people kind of look, that's kind of weird, but I mean, that's kind of cool. What do you do for mental fitness? Well, I go down to the pub with my mates, you know? That's my physical fitness, or my mental fitness. You know, we talk about this over a few pints, and you know, have a grand old time. And that's people have that choice. Camaraderie, uh, support through uh, groups, uh, friends that we trust, our trusted friends. You know, the different support structures. But the importance is the intention and a certain trust, a devotion in what we're doing, a dedication to what we're doing. And I think what is missing, in, in, in my opinion, uh, in observation in Western, quote, Buddhism or Dharma or whatever it might be, is that we're somewhat afraid of the devotional aspect of Buddhism. And what's so lovely here on a, the first night, and, and every, just to hear the chanting here, how, how beautiful it is, everybody's voice is being raised up. And we grew up with that kind of influence. But certainly for me, devotion in Buddhism is, is different. But it's still, it's still a giving of the heart to something that we lift up above the self, the ego, and are willing to make certain, certain sacrifices here. The sacrifice you've made to be here, to spend this time here, to get dedicate uh, your entire 10 days to take time off of, of your busy life, your work schedule. Um, it's no small thing. People, uh, Some of you come from very close by, a little easier to get here, but even the ones that come from close by, you have to make adjustments in your life. Take If you're taking time off from work, somebody to cover your work schedule, all of these things. So that's a major sign of your confidence, your trust, your uh, faith, if you like, in what this is, what it means to you. And, uh, and so the continuity to take it back into the world is we seek out whatever support structures uh, we can find. And I'm a firm believer in that I mentioned it, I think, early on in one of my talks about that we all have an internal tape recorder. That when we sit and open our hearts and listen, that things are being recorded. Everything is being recorded. That's just kind of the natural part of our, if we're actually hearing and listening and we're present, there's a recording mechanism. And so some of those things that are important or that we feel uh, we identify with, they'll come back at the appropriate time. So I think we're, we're journaling or a, a diary of some of the things, but also a certain trust and, and, and you know, kind of mark, markers that you might have in, you know, the retreat, the kind of the key points. And the beautiful thing now, of course, is that they're all recorded. We can go, uh, the tapes, all, all of the talks will be put together and uh, then they'll be available for you to listen to again. Uh, and they won't be the same, will they? Because it will now be things that happened but then to refresh, and, and I think it's a lovely thing because I haven't done it, but I know it's useful to listen. I've done it some, but I have a, a close friend who teaches a lot, and he always records his talks and listens to them because he learns a tremendous amount. And some of you that might uh, teach in some way, that might, oh, I hate listening to myself, but 
you know, what is that about? And there's so much to learn when we hear. I know when I hear my own voice, I can be very critical. And I, the last talk I listened to was out at uh, Abayagiri, a talk that I gave that Rumpopassana uh, invited me to do. And I, I just, I got to listen to that talk. I don't think it was not such a bad talk. And I listened from, a, from one end to the other. And I was like, wow, Joseph, that was a really good talk. <laughs> but it wasn't like, yeah, Joseph, you're, but I just, I was humbled by my own. And this blue eyes and saffron robes that um, I hope you all get a chance to see. You'll, you'll find it quite entertaining and, and fun. The, the young, the young uh, uh, Samanera Amaro and the elder Ajahn Pabakaro, or the very junior but aspiring Ajahn Pabakaro. He's 30 at the time. 30, a whopping 30. And uh, so, but I, I was listening to this, and I, I, I know this is me in a past life, but I'm listening to this. Oh, I was much more articulate than I thought I was. I just thought I was horrible when I opened my mouth. And I was like actually quite impressed. And I don't have that memory. I don't have that kind of perception that, that uh, I had much together. I mean, I was de devoted and things, and I was put in a position of responsibility at a young, uh, at a pretty young age. And of course, the only training I had in leading was in the military. So I kind of ruled the monastery with a bit of a, well, you get the picture. <laughs> to the horror of, of some of the monks over my generation. But I was doing the best that I could, and I learned. So life is, in fact, a learning, isn't it? It's constantly teaching us. Our bodies are teaching us. Our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, our wanting, you know, that that we're, we were separated from the liked and we're associated with the dislike and not getting what I what I want. I mean, it's it's kind of universal. If people could sit down and they'll say, "We'll pay you, you know, twenty five quid if you'll take a survey, and you know, answer honestly." So everybody you know shows up. You get a hundred people. They all get twenty five quid. And how many of you in your life ever experience frustration when you don't get what you want? You know, everybody hands go up, isn't it? Well, that's Buddha said, that's what part of what dukkha is, or being separated from what you love, what you like. And then the last one, you know, being associated with or coming into contact and rubbing against those rough edges of things that I don't like. And whether we want to admit it or not, we know it's absolutely true. So herein lies Dhamma, herein lies the teaching, here lies the opportunity, day in, day out, steadfast, observing, being present, forget, come back. The body is always there. The breath is always there. There's always another uh, opportunity to uh, begin again. And that's the beauty. We, 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 don't, we don't measure our practice by success, but we also don't measure it by failure. So a good meditation, oh, I feel so good about, you know, today I had a really pretty good day. I had three sits where I felt I was like bordering on jhana. I'm not sure. But I read it, and it's like, you know, start from the other, the kind of the joyous, rapturous, you know, I felt these kind of shrills of mojo coming up my spine, and, but I don't know, it might have been you know, who was sitting next to me that kind of, you know, we can kind of, <laughs> you know, what was she projecting, or what was he projecting, or, you know, we can just spin out, and, and, and we laugh, it's absurd, but yet, we can measure that, aren't we? We're constantly judging ourselves 
and comparing and contrasting like-dislike. I want to look like him, but I don't want to look like him. Oh, she's really beautiful and attractive, and I hope that I look like that. But I look in the mirror, oh, I don't quite look like that, but I'm pretty close to looking like that. And, and this constant kind of dialogue, this is the self-talk, isn't it? And everyone here, I absolutely guarantee this, period, you're absolutely beautiful who you are. I don't care what size, shape, gender, sexual orientation, you fill in the blanks. You are beautiful as you are. And if you can't love you as you are, how do you expect anybody else to love you? Because once you love yourself, then it doesn't matter whether people love you or not, is it? This is a huge one for me, the self-loathing, the self-talk of, oh, I'm not worthy and I'm getting older and you know, my knees are bad and I walk with a little bit of limp and it really looks weird and even though I'm 68 and, and you know, people understand, I still, you know, I don't like to walk like that and I'm a little overweight or, I'm, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. We carry this, these, these images of ourselves and we re reinforce that dialogue. That's not the dialogue we want to reinforce, is it? And we've been doing it for way too long, like the Buddha said. You've been, you've been on this round of birthing and, 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 and rebirthing and dying for a really long time. So it's not like snap our fingers and we're going to awaken and see the light. But, you know, moment to moment, day in, day out, step by step, that kind of steadfast practice. And how wonderful we all have the opportunity and the pace is 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 up to us the pace is is set by our willingness to invest our time and energy and the more that we can come to amarwati or to a retreat center or uh, like-minded people who sit together and talk dhamma and these things these are all incredible opportunities to uh, 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 reinforce our practice uh, there's men's groups there's women's groups there's groups from recovery for this and addiction to that and there there's so much out there to seek good support within within uh, uh, the framework of the, what we have time for, and uh, so the noticing uh, some Thich Nhat Hanh books are very very helpful. I know one. I'm not sure if it's um, the Miracle of Mindfulness, or uh, there's there's a lot of them. Some of the earlier ones, but like Ajahn was talking about starting the car, the five seconds. Well, Thich Nhat Hanh says things when you go out to the car, you, you stop and you say, before I start my car, I know where I'm going. Just, there it is, less than five seconds. Yeah, before I start my car, I know where I'm going. So instead of just go out, start, car, go, there's a pause, you know, the art of the pause. There's always a, a moment to pause. Like five seconds, that's huge. If you can, and then at the end of the day, if you have your Fitbit mindfulness app, you can kind of add all that up, and by the end of the day, you've maybe had an hour of mindfulness. It all adds up, doesn't it? I mean, seriously. If, if you're into that, you like technology and things, why not? Give it a try. and uh, Or keep your little notebook. You just have it nice in your purse, your, your pocketbook, your little waistcoat pocket, wherever. And you can you know, kind of make little notes you know, oh, on, the, uh, on the tube. I actually was standing there, and this guy next to me had really bad breath. <laughs> and, and he, you know, I just felt kind of, ugh. 
And then I actually, oh, this is just, he's got his own life story. Maybe he can't afford a toothbrush or go to the dentist. <laughs> but actually, soften your heart and really open, open your heart to embrace this person because it's a fellow human being. And, you know, there's a reason for, for these things. And so there's so much we're constantly moving uh, in and around each other and not touching each other physically, but our antenna, we have feelers, don't we? Our sense bases, our feelers, we're constantly kind of stroking and feeling the world around us without actually physically touching, but are, we're very acutely aware. And so we can pick things up and we can soften or we can be aggressive or we can you know, adapt and we can flow. It's a constant challenge, but it's also it's an opportunity, isn't it? That's what's beautiful. There's, there's, there's any, everything can be made into a sense of practice, of, of presence, of being with things as they are, as they on flow, as they, as they unfold. So this is, you know, my, you know, intention and effort. What I've been practicing to the best of, of my ability. One other thing that that you might find helpful, and there are activities that we really enjoy. So maybe you love to do, to paint, or do needlework, or crochet. I love to crochet. Even plus, I made a love to crochet. And we crocheted some really neat things. Because it was just, it was like unselfconscious doing. You just, your hands are there, and you can just be there, and just be so relaxed. You see little old ladies, you know, they knit. Oh, I'm not going to knit little old ladies. I'm not going to knit. Or, ooh, women knit. I'd never knit. You know, I'm a guy. And and I've knitted. I've crocheted. Um they're really fun. Yeah. It's really fun. Because <laughs> you're creating something with your hands. And the point I want to make is that there are some things that we don't necessarily have to be like stitch, unstitch, whatever it's called. I forget the terms now in the, in the netting where you pull one and it's called something else, something else. So you don't have to be neurotic about it. You can actually just relax your body and mind. Maybe you're listening to some nice music or something. And you can do a stitch at a time. And you don't have to be, you know, breathing and trying to be really mindful because that's what you think mindfulness is. But you can soften into it. Gardening. Gardening is a wonderful. You get out and you touch the earth. You can forget about it. You're touching, you know, getting your hands dirty. There's something about getting in the soil, isn't there? And just kind of forgetting yourself to some extent. And that's lovely because then you, you get out of your head. So I find if I get my tendency to darkness, to depression, uh, that the worst, absolutely worst, worst thing that I can do is isolate. It's like sit and do nothing because then it's just a downward spiral, isn't it? When we isolate ourselves and then just like start to start to just kind of think how miserable I am. And and I, I guarantee it'll work every time. You want to be miserable, just sit there, feel miserable, reinforce being miserable, and absolutely know that you are miserable. You'll never be anything but miserable. You're a wretch. You're in the self kind of loathing pattern goes on and on and on and on and on. And well, I might as well kill myself because I'm I'm useless. And and it can get that bad. And people do go into those states, and that's how suicide can happen. But if I step out and I, I'm active or if I seek help or I get out, this is a dangerous place for some people, for veterans especially. It's a very dangerous place. So, you know, 
you yourself or you had a friend that you can call or something. You need to have a lifeline if that if it's that bad. And, and for some of us, it might be and some certainly that I know it is. And you can't save the world. But there you know, are people that, that absolutely need, need that. But once you kind of lift it, it's just like getting up in the morning, isn't it, for our practice here. You know, we hear the bell or whatever. If we have our alarm, get up a little bit before. And if you pause for more that, if you pause for one thought moment before getting up, then the next thought moment's going to come. And then it's kind of, ugh, got to get up again, or I'm tired, or I don't feel good, or it's really cold this morning, so I'm going to wait till the last minute. And, and Ajahn's been coming a couple minutes late, and, or Joseph's been late. Ajahn's on time, so. But I think I can come in just because my room's really close, you know, I kind of trot in at the last moment or something, and, and you know, we, we call it. And work can be like that too, can't we? But we can change that attitude. We can absolutely change the attitude. When I look at what it is that bothers me, I go, well, is it, is it really that bothersome? Is it really that painful? And if it is, then maybe we need to make a change. Maybe it's not a good relationship. Maybe it's not a good job. Maybe it's a, a that a lifestyle change is, is required. I don't know. But that's something that you can, you know, and you seek out friendship, whatever, and, and, but stuckness is not good. And I don't think we're absolutely stuck, even though we might think we are. So here's a few things that I hope is, is, is helpful for the things that I uh, try to do. And uh, it's been an absolute uh, delight and honor, as I've said before, to be here on this retreat. If the uh, pattern holds, I'm not sure how many hours, I didn't figure it out, but if we do it in two, get another one in two years, I'll be a whopping 70 years old. Ooh, the big 7 hole. And I'll let Ajahn kind of figure out the hours. We can announce that tomorrow, how many hours that would be before we have another retreat. But I certainly hope so. Um, we've done it, uh, this is our third one together, and, and I think it's very special for, for me and what I hear that, that people uh, find it uh, helpful. And uh, I think we've got a pretty good, uh, you know, act going on here. I think we're going to show up, rise to the occasion, and uh, just express to everybody how much I am fond and, and you know, have a deep love and respect uh, for this young lad here and uh, him rising up into his uh, position of, of uh, uh, distinguished uh, monastic career. Okay. Yeah, I realize that I'm now twice as old as you were when you first came. What? Speaking of numbers. Yes. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I was hoping you'd come up with one of those. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, John. And for everybody, too, I, I do, and the spirit of this is to ask for forgiveness, and I generally do anything that I've said or done uh, by body or speech, uh, that I ask for your forgiveness, any offensive behavior, and uh, any thoughts that you might have picked up on, those kind of vibrations that you might have seen Joseph doing, and I wonder, you know, he looked at me askew, and I don't think he was criticizing me because my posture was not good, or he seems to sit so straight, but... Uh, I ask for forgiveness for that as well, and uh, it's uh, it's an absolute uh, honor and delight. And I don't know, there's probably a lot of other English words, but you get the picture. So thank you. <laughs>